Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. I, I want us to have a look at uh, the, the um, Palm Sunday passage tonight and just let God speak to us really about some wonderful things that are in that um, passage of Scripture. But before we get there, I want to ask you two questions and... Um, I want you to talk to the person next to you about these questions. Now, I want to say that when we do this occasionally at Central and some people like talking to one another and some people hate it. And I just want you to know that I know that, that I actually know that this makes some of you feel quite uncomfortable and I'm okay with that. Um, That's okay. That makes it all okay. No, this is the reason why we talk, because so often uh, in church, we're just passive and we listen, but we need to be talking and bringing ourselves and sharing um, what God is doing in us and through us. It's really important that we do that as followers of Jesus, but often the format of church doesn't give a lot of space for that. So that's why we do it, even though I know it makes people uncomfortable and that sometimes maybe you wish you weren't sitting next to the person you accidentally sat next to. But anyway, if you, like, Rob, you're not sitting next to anyone. So um, these are the two questions I want you to just chat with the person next to you um, briefly about. The first one is just where are you finding it easiest to sense God's presence in your life at the moment? Um, And the second question is, where are you struggling um, to sense God? Um, Or another way of putting that is, you know, is there a place in your life where you you feel, just that feeling, it doesn't mean that God is absent, but sometimes it's hard to have a tangible sense of God in different parts of our lives. So I just want you to talk to the person next to you and answer those two questions just real quickly before we start. Does anyone want to share some of the places where they're finding it really easy to sense God's presence at the moment? No, no, it's fine. And of course, like, as a complete, like, you know, obvious thing from the outset, I'm, I'm saying that I do think that God's presence can encounter us. I don't think we're just... I do think that spiritual nature of who we are as people can connect with the Spirit of God and there are times when we, we, can, we can sense and, and feel uh, the presence of God. Now, many of us have different ways that we do that and sometimes it's more kind of like tangible or concrete than others. But I do believe that, you know, the heart of God is, is to encounter us as people and that our, our faith is not just a cognitive thing that we kind of agree to, but it's actually... It is an encounter that we have at different stages through our journey. So, how are, you know, what are the ways some of the people are sensing God? Um, this is really obvious, but in the worship time just then, I felt like I encountered God, but not in, like, I was praising God, in that Paul and I had a practice an hour before we came, and it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was like, oh, man, I should just let Paul do it by himself because I could hardly sing. I'd been at the Palm Sunday rally and my throat was sore because I was shouting, free the refugees. And then it turned out it was all fine. And I'm like, oh, that was God. That wasn't me. Wonderful. How else? How else are people encountering? 
I was just saying I thought that it was easiest for me to sense God's presence in the micro bits of my life. So in the details of relationship, the warmth of the sun, the goodness of coffee, uh, that's the kind of, that's where I really see God's presence. And for me, conversely, looking out at the world is when I start to get a bit more disoriented and overwhelmed and not quite sure where it all fits. But if I keep on to the micro and the details, then I sort of feel like, yeah, I have a sense of it. Anyone else want to share? Thanks. I was just saying, when I saw little Kaya dancing in the spirit, and she does it every week, I really feel a connection with her for that. And it was just so beautiful. And then she turned around, she see this big wave and this beautiful smile. And I was like, that's God right there. That's the love of God right there. It's really beautiful. That's great. Anyone else? might seem a bit, I don't know, flippant, but I reckon I can answer both of those questions in the same event depending on the day and it's my quiet time. Sometimes I sense God's presence and sometimes he seems, where are you God? Anyone else want to share? I feel like this side needs to balance out some of the sharing. Jessen is... <laughs> yeah, this is the, this is the first question. Okay, I was saying that I feel like what I associate with God's presence is more um, when I'm in my lows, and there's this stark contrast of like where hope enters in and where there's just like this faithfulness of God. So I'm not really there at the moment. <laughs> so I'm like, where are you, God? But I was just thinking about just. The main probably place of connection to God's presence is in relationship, like uh, Beck just kind of said as well, just seeing um, God's faithfulness um, in the face of uh, people who kind of keep showing up, and um, that's, that's been really good. Yeah. Great. Anyone want to answer the second question? It's a bit deeper, I think, the second question. Oh, Amanda, you've got the bravery on. <laughs> um, both Danny and I had a similar answer that we struggle to sense God in our rushing and our busyness. It's actually in the quieter moments that we're able to get a sense from God and things that he might be revealing to us, but um, in that busyness is when we miss it. So. Anyone else want to share? We also had a similar answer, which was in our parenting, in our mothering. That's when, yeah, <laughs> that's like it kind of feels like we're just doing it on our own, and then we have to remember, oh, hang on, we could invite God into this. It's good. Anyone else? Oh, Michael. Yeah, a couple of things, a clear one for me is at work, I tend to just bumble along in my own head at work um, and I've always struggled to just be aware and connect with God there, um, very much a head thing but um, also 
not so much sensing, but um, sensing his presence, but discerning God. Um, at the moment, like at, at times when I'm feeling pretty emotionally vulnerable and strong emotions, I find it really hard to get what God's heart is because um, my heart's sort of going overdrive. So, yeah. That's great. Thanks for sharing. Anyone else want to jump in? Right. <laughs> I don't know if we should see, see you two together. I shouldn't be saying this on the mic, but... No, we said in the existential questions. We feel God's absence in the existential questions. <laughs> That's why we weren't volunteering. Okay, we'll move along. Um... I want us to read uh, this passage of scripture about Jesus coming to Jerusalem as king. And I'm, I'm, we're reading it from, from Luke's gospel. It's present in all the gospels in different formats, but I want us to read it in Luke's gospel tonight. And I'm going to ask someone, who likes reading? Jill, can you see it from there? Because <laughs> I feel like, oh, you've got it there. All right. Luke 19, verses 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, to the, down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Thanks, Jill. It's a bit of a tragic end, that one, but I actually really like it. <laughs> um, I have a really deep affection for this passage of Scripture. Um, and it's one of the passages of just... It's such a visual um, passage of scripture where the writer of Luke is describing the events that are happening and you can, you know, when you read it and you sit yourself in this passage, you can get a sense of like the fullness of all the um, emotions and things that were going on, you know, like if you do like that kind of Ignatian meditation on it, you can smell the dust of the road and see the cloaks getting laid down and smell the donkey because the donkey would have smelled a bit. And, you know, you can hear the people and they're 
celebrating and they're crying out and they're saying Hosanna and there's people whinging in the background and saying to Jesus to stop it and then he starts to descend the hill down the Mount of Olives, down to the gates of Jerusalem and as all of this commotion is going on and as people are celebrating and crying out and there are palm branches waving and cloaks flapping, Jesus is weeping and it's like such a jarring picture of you know the extremes of celebration and yet Jesus is weeping and weeping and this is one of those passages of scripture that I turn to and sit myself in in times when I find it hard to sense God in my life and I turn to this passage of scripture at times when I feel like God isn't doing what I think he should be doing. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had that kind of feeling in your life that you think, come on God, you should be, you should be doing something, anything. You should be doing this. And yet I feel like maybe God isn't doing it. And this is one of the, the passages that I turn to because in this passage, Jesus is doing what is so unexpected and so unusual and he's doing this prophetic act of riding into Jerusalem um, like a king but he's not on a war horse he's on a donkey and even though everyone else around him is celebrating and cheering and doing what you think should be done for a king who's riding into a city Jesus isn't engaging in that he's just weeping and as he's weeping he's speaking prophetically out across um, Jerusalem and the people and he's saying if only you had known what would bring you peace if only you had known what would bring you peace and I can't tell you the number of times in my own life that's the cry of my heart God what I want peace I want your peace and Jesus is weeping over the city and he's saying if only you had known what would bring you peace and then he goes on um, to prophesy the demise of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70 when the Romans encamped them and then destroyed the city. And he says, you did not recognise the time of your king coming to you. God's coming to you. You did not recognise that God was coming to you. And it's just this, this passage that I enter when I know that I'm failing to recognise God in my life. Because I think this is a passage where the people around Jesus really failed to recognise all that was going on. They were just excited about the miracles and they were praising God for all the good things and all the miraculous stuff that Jesus had done. But Jesus himself is just weeping because they've missed the point. And I can resonate with that so much in my life, this longing to know God, longing to find God, but feeling so often like I'm missing I'm missing the point. To really, I think, kind of unpack the fullness of what is going on here for what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus is doing something remarkably incredible that when you read this passage without reference to the Old Testament, you miss the significance of what's going on. So what I'd like to do... Um, now is just kind of help us try and enter the story um, that 
that is written and outlaid for us in the Old Testament about how the, the people of Israel encountered the presence of God. Because there's a thread that runs its way through the Old Testament that when we come to what Jesus is doing on this day, Palm Sunday, in Jerusalem, makes a whole lot more sense than just looking to the passage as it stands. So I want to kind of like lay out for you some of the key amazing things of how the nation of Israel encountered as a corporate group the presence of God, how it was that God came to them. Because the end of this passage is you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. But there were times in the Old Testament where God clearly came to the people of Israel and they got it. But this is one of the times when they missed it. So in order to kind of start the story, we, really, you need, we need to go back right the way through. When we go back to Genesis, the calling of Abraham, the start of the nation of Israel, we see God, um, he starts by just revealing himself to individuals, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And if you read the, the account of Genesis, you start to see these little moments where these individual men start to encounter God in ways that they don't understand. They either heard God's voice. We have the story of Jacob who falls asleep and has that dream about the angels kind of ascending and descending the ladder and he wakes up and he says, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. And so he builds a stone altar and um, there were lots of little stone piles in the Old Testament of places where people felt like they encountered God. And so we have these kind of like individual encounters with God where God is slowly revealing himself to his people, slowly calling, um, you know, calling forth the nation of Israel. But it's not really until Mount Sinai that we get the first corporate expression of the presence of God to God's people. So you know the story. God has brought his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They're in the desert. Moses is their leader. And God calls them to his holy mountain. And he says, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And Moses, you know, is going to go up and get the Ten Commandments. And it's all incredibly wonderful. And in this um, passage of scripture in Exodus chapter 19, we get this first amazing expression of the presence of God revealed to his people. And this is how it goes. Um, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. Thunder, thunder. Dun, dun. You know, it's like people write songs about this. Um, <laughs> with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So this is like the tangible encounter of God and his people. There is thunder and lightning and smoke and there is noise and there is a trumpet blast. Like you don't get more tangible than that if you're, you know, in the Old Testament times. Everyone in the camp trembled, freaked out. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. They stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up for it, from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Isn't that, like, incredible? Like, 
we want to talk about how we encounter the presence of God. That was like the first time God gathered a group of people to himself and revealed himself. Thunder, lightning, earthquakes, smoke, fire, trumpet blasts, voices, and everybody freaked out except for Moses pretty much. And this is God like revealing himself to his people. And these are stories that the Israelites would have told themselves again and again and again about how their God Yahweh reveals himself to his people in thunder, in lightning, in smoke, in fire, in earthquakes, in trumpet blasts. It's like it's like mountaintop experiences. And it literally was a mountain, so you can kind of say that. And the people, I think... I mean, it's a, I won't go into the tragedy of the story. But anyway, so then you know, moving along a little bit, um, they have the great idea that they're going to make a tent for God to live in. And so God helps them by giving them all the instructions about how they're going to craft this tabernacle, which was to be the place of God's presence among the people. And it was a tent, so it could move with God's people everywhere they went. So if they moved from this place to that place, they could pack up the tent, move the tent, and God had a tent to live in. Um, and so they built it, and the inst- you can read pages and pages and pages of instructions, and I'm sure many of you have, and been riveted by the glory of the construction of the tabernacle. Um, and then we get, again, in Exodus chapter 40, the, t- the tabernacle is completed... All the people gather around, they sacrifice all kinds of animals and they're welcoming God into this place where he is going to dwell. And what happens again? But this, in Exodus chapter 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not live, they di- lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. And so again, the place of God's presence, the visualization of God's presence is smoke and fire. These it's intense, yeah, and it's intense. Thank you. And that, so these, again, are the stories that God's people are telling themselves about how God dwells, what God's presence is like. This is the holy of holies. This is the place that God lives. And how do we know that God lives there? Because there's fire and there's smoke and there's cloud. And then we move along in Israel's history, which again is a tragic weaving of what happens to that tent and the people and Canaan. And we get to the place where Solomon, in all his intelligence, decides a tent is no longer good enough for God. He's going to build him a permanent home and it's going to be the temple. And so Moses constructs the most incredible building that is going to be the house of God on the earth. And God is going to dwell in this little house, um, in the Holy of Holies. And so he builds it. And again, you can read the instructions, riveting instructions of how to build the temple and all the gold and the bronze and the plates and, you know, all kinds of wonderful things that the Israelites built. And then when it comes to the day 
where they're going to dedicate the temple to God and they bring the Ark of the Covenant, which is the place, you know, where the stone tablets are and where God's presence dwells above, dwells above the Ark and they carry it into the Holy of Holies and it says in, in, you read the descriptions, I don't know how true this is, but they slaughter, they're slaughtering thousands of animals to, to God as sacrifices, 22,000 cows, it says. I mean, it's, I it's, there's a lot, imagine the blood, like, it's like, it's, it's an epic picture of the dedication of this temple to God. And again, what happens when all the priests come and they, they dedicate the temple to God? 1 Kings chapter 8 says this. When the priests withdrew from the holy place because they took the Ark of the Covenant in there and placed it on the altar in the Holy Holy of Holies, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And the people saw the tangible presence of God fall into the temple thick cloud and again these are the stories that Israel told themselves over and over again they knew what it was like when God when God showed up when God shows up there's clouds there's fire there's smoke there's earthquakes there's amazing things that go on when God's presence shows up and of course the holy of holies was the place in the Israelite kind of mind where God lived and the temple was the center of everything. I think that if you were to ask an Israelite around the time of David, Solomon or the kings afterwards, where does God live? Their answer would have been in the temple, in Jerusalem, in the temple. God lives in the temple. And so there's this kind of trajectory that we follow of the presence of God through the Old Testament. He comes on Mount Sinai, he comes into the tabernacle, he comes into the temple. But then, because of Israel's rebellion and their disobedience and their unfaithfulness to God, they end up in exile, the northern Israel into Assyria and southern Israel into Babylon. And this temple, this dwelling place of God, this holy of holies, this place of smoke and fire, gets destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BC, all the gold, all the bronze, all the silver stripped, all the priests slaughtered, the place burnt to the ground, and all the people sent into exile. And it's the tragic kind of like picture of the end of Jerusalem and the end of the temple as they knew it. And there's lots of things in the Old Testament that talk about the tragedy of this. It was like exile, when the people got sent into, the, into exile, it was confirmation in their minds that God had left them. When the temple had no longer any stone standing upon itself and the Holy of Holies was burnt to the ground and the gold was stripped and the priests were killed, it was like God was dead. God was gone because God's dwelling place was destroyed. And in the book of Ezekiel, there are some crazy... Uh, crazy images. Ezekiel is an interesting book to read. But in chapter 10 and chapter 11, 
Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, I've just pulled out a few different verses and taken away a lot of the weird stuff so you can kind of like follow it because <laughs> it is kind of weird. Now, that, so, so Ezekiel's been taken up into a vision. So he's seeing this vision thing. Now the cherubim was standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court. What does the cloud represent? God, God's presence. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of God. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so Ezekiel sees this vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. Remember, it came in the time of Solomon, and it leaves and it goes to the east, and it's just, we don't see much more after that. And then throughout the rest of the prophets, we get these signs of the sadness of this. In Lamentations chapter 2, the writer says, The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. Her king and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more and her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. I mean, it's devastating when you're following this thread. This glorious presence of God, this place that was... God's dwelling place on earth and the presence of God has left and gone to the mountain east of Jerusalem. And the people are in exile. Fifty years later, um, a few of the exiles were sent back to rebuild Jerusalem. So things are starting to look up again. Um, and in Ezra chapter 3, we get the start of the telling of the rebuilding of the temple. So this glorious temple where God has dwelled, but Ezekiel seeing God's presence leave, some of the exiles come back and start to rebuild in the hope that God would come back to them. And so they begin to lay the foundations of the temple. And in Ezra chapter 3, it says this, the builders laid the foundation of the Lord's temple. Then the priests came. They were wearing their special clothes. They brought their trumpets with them. The Levites who belonged to the family line of Asaph also came. They brought their symbols with them. The priests and Levites took their places to praise the Lord. They did everything just as King David had required them to do. They sang to the Lord. They praised him. They gave thanks to him. They said, the Lord is good. His faithful love to Israel continues forever. And all the people gave a loud shout. They praised the Lord. They were glad because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family leaders sobbed out loud. They had seen the first temple. So when they saw the foundation of the second temple being laid, they sobbed. Others shouted with joy. No one could tell the difference between the shouts of joy and the sounds of sobbing. That's because the people made so much noise. And the sound was heard far away. 
Isn't that just like the same picture that we get of Jesus sobbing and the people celebrating and this juxtaposition of emotions? And so they rebuild the temple, second temple Jerusalem, second temple era. But nowhere in our scriptures do we ever have an indication that God's presence came back to the temple. Never did the cloud come back. Never did it thunder and lightning. Never. And throughout all the prophets after that, they talk about this longing for God to return, this longing for the presence of God to come back to their temple. In Haggai chapter 2, he writes, Did any of you who are here see how beautiful this temple used to be? How does it look to you now? It doesn't look so good, does it? But be strong, Zerubbabel, announced the Lord. Be strong, Jeshua. Be strong, all of you people in the land, announces the Lord. Start rebuilding. I am with you, announced the Lord who rules over all. That is what I promised you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit continues to be with you, so do not be afraid. The Lord says, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth once more. I will also shake the ocean and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. Then what they consider to be priceless will come to my temple. And I will fill the temple with glory, says the Lord who rules over all. The new temple will be more beautiful than the first one was, says the Lord. And in this place, I will give peace to my people, announces the Lord who rules over all. And in Malachi chapter 1, they say, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. In Isaiah It's written, the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all the people shall see it together. Your sentinels lift up their voices, together they sing for joy, for in plain sight they will see the return of Yahweh to Zion. So there's this longing ever since exile, since the presence never came back to the temple. When is God going to come back to us? His glory is going to come back. His beauty is going to come back. You're going to see God come back to the temple. And so what is Jesus doing on Palm Sunday when he stands on top of the mountain east of the city and he rides his donkey straight down the path of the vision where the man saw the glory leave? Jesus is God the presence of God coming back to the temple. He is Yahweh in plain sight. He is the priceless one. He is the peace that the people long for. And he's following the path of the presence back to the temple. But what does he do when he gets there? He drives it all out. And he's making a point. This is no longer the place of my dwelling. Destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. What's he talking about? His body. Now no longer is a building the dwelling place of God, but the dwelling place of God is among men. And Jesus was Yahweh come back to his people. And this is what he's doing on Palm Sunday. This is the prophetic act he's saying. All of these things you've been longing for, you know the scriptures. You know the scriptures. You know the scripture that says... That the glory of God departed the temple and waited to the mountain east of Jerusalem. That's the Mount of Olives. 
And Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives and prophetically walks back into the temple. And he's like, I'm back. But it's not as you know it. It's a different thing. And my dwelling place is now no longer in a building, but is among men. And Paul takes this metaphor further and further in his letters, where it's not only that Jesus is the dwelling place of God among people, but Paul says to us, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You guys are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't live in a building. God lives in you. If only you knew what would bring you peace. If only you would recognize the time of God's coming to you. So this is why I return again and again to this passage when I'm struggling to kind of sense where God is in the world, in my life. Because that's what the people were feeling. Like God was gone. There was nothing inside the Holy of Holies anymore. They knew that. The cloud had never returned. In some kind of metaphorical sense, God had never returned to the temple. But in this passage of scripture, Jesus is God returning to the temple, but not as anyone expected it. And it's a constant reminder to me that God likes to come to us in unexpected ways. That the ways that he once used to come to us aren't always the ways that he continues to come to us. How we once found him and saw him and encountered him is not always the way that we will see him and find him and encounter him. And even as I'm saying that, I totally understand the way language is failing us because I know it's not just, God is not just an encounter that we have or something that we look for external to us, but we are the dwelling place of God. And so God never does actually leave us because he lives within us. And we are in Christ and God is in us and those, that beautiful kind of mashup of John talks about it, the intimacy of God. So it's not just that we're constantly searching for where God is coming to us, but sitting in the knowledge that God is always within us. And yet I know that it's the grace of God in my life that I still encounter God in ways that are external to my own self. That's the grace of God that God chooses to reveal himself to each one of us in unique and different ways. I know I don't really need to search for God like he's somehow outside of me, and yet I know that I often do sense the presence of God external to me, and I can see God, and I know that that's just the grace. So in my life, when I... I, I, I think about this, what does this mean? Like in my life, I've had those mountaintop experiences like Sinai, like the tabernacle. Like, I mean, not really. I haven't actually had those, but you know what I'm saying, metaphorically. I've had those times in my life when I've felt the incredible joy and delight, the mountaintop experiences of God's presence. I felt God's presence in my body. I felt the heat of the presence of God. I felt like, you know, well, I felt God like just rush through me like, pins and needles there have been times in worship together with God's people where I can really tangibly sense the presence of God literally in my body I've had a a couple of miraculous encounters in my life where I felt like God has healed me like a couple like maybe two in my nearly 40 years I've had powerful prayer times and I've had mountaintop experiences, the metaphorical lightning and thunder and smoke and fire. 
I've had those times. And I'm sure you have too, you know, when you look back upon your life at some of the things that God has done in your life, some of the ways that God has revealed himself to you. He's done some pretty amazing things, I hope and pray, to reveal himself to you. And yet I've also come to learn how to encounter God and discover God in far less exciting ways. I've learned to see God not just on the mountain, but sitting with me in my pain. I've learned to encounter the presence of God in my loneliness and my suffering. I've learned what it feels like to just know that God is with me when my heart is aching and things aren't right. I've encountered the God who weeps with me when I'm weeping and he's just very gentle with me. He comes to me in, gentle, in gentleness. And so it's not always like the mountaintop and the smoke and the lightning. Sometimes it's in the very ordinary things that we encounter God in. And I always need to be reminded that God comes to me in ordinary ways. Because often the nature of myself as a human being, and I suspect that many of us too, is that it's easier for us to identify God with us on the mountaintop when it's amazing. And it's sometimes a little bit harder to know the presence of God in the very ordinariness of life, in the busyness, in the parenting, in the pain. And yet God is with us always. That's the truth of us being the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God never leaves us or forsakes us. He's found in very ordinary things like bread and like wine. And one of the ways that God reveals himself to me at the moment is very ordinary. I'm, I'm often sitting at home um, at our our kitchen table and I might be doing admin or writing sermons or just doing bits and pieces and there's a magpie that comes into our front yard or it's probably more than one magpie but I can't tell them apart so I just call it the magpie and he comes often right up to our glass door and he taps on my window and I remember the first time this happened just the still small voice in my heart I felt God say to me, I'm reminding you that I'm with you. There you are sitting at the kitchen table, reading your Bible, writing a sermon. I'm with you. And so the, God comes to me in the magpies. And I tell, I've told the kids that. So every, everywhere we go, they're like, oh, my mum, there's your magpie friend. And I'm like, yeah, he's here to remind me that God's with me. God comes to us in the very ordinary things. And the question I want to bring you back to is where are you struggling to sense God's presence in your life? Where are you feeling maybe that God is absent for you? And maybe our reminder today on Palm Sunday is to be open to the new and unexpected ways that God's presence might like to interrupt our lives. That maybe we would be able to say to God, okay, God, this is how it has been in the past, but I'm not going to just hang my hat on that. I'm going to say to you, come to me, 
however you choose to come and help me have the eyes to see you where I can find you. That I would not miss the time of God's coming to me and miss that which brings me peace. But I would be a follower that with eyes wide open can say, Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. You're not confined to the past. You're not confined to the cloud or the thunder or the mountaintop. But come to me in every way you can. Come in the ordinary. Come in the deep. Come in the shallow. Come in the magpie. Come in the bread. Come in the wine. Come in the sunshine on my face. Come in my prayers. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Blessed is the one who comes to us in ways we do not recognize. Blessed is the one who comes to us in lowly things. Blessed is the one who comes to us offering peace. Blessed is the one who weeps over us when we miss the point. Blessed is the one who comes to us. Blessed is the one. And so I just want to invite you today on Palm Sunday, the day of God's return to the temple, the day when God's presence came back in a way that nobody ever expected. It wasn't a cloud, it was a man on a donkey. That you would have an open heart that says to God, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let me see you in unexpected things and let me trust your presence in my life. Amen. Luke, do you want to lead us in communion? So as we reflect on on that, we're going to come to the table and we're going to uh, take in these things that Jesus said were his body and his blood, the most ordinary of things, bread and wine, the things that were common and everyday. And so we're going to come, we're going to share them and we're going to just take a moment and reflect together on that. So come on, come on around, grab, grab some bread, grab some wine and then just get, go back to your seat and I'll just might lead us in a reflection as we, as we take those together. So as we are in this place, we are holding the body and the blood of Jesus in our hands. And I'm just reminded, um, Richard Raw says, that God loves things by becoming them. And that's, we are holding on to the embodiment of, of God in the bread and the blood. But we also are sitting amongst each other, that God has loved the world by becoming part of it. And the full fulfillment of that was in Jesus but we're also the fulfillment of that that God is in each of us and sometimes in the absence of knowing the the presence of God in our world maybe all we need to do is look to the person next to us or maybe the person next to you needs to be looking to you so not only are we able to see God in others but others are able to see God in us so I want us just to sit and, re- and reflect on that as we eat and as we drink of the presence and the goodness and the love of God.
that we are also called to embody God to others and we are also called to see God in others and maybe even those that we don't want to see God in. And I think that's a challenge in both directions. So let's just take a moment, just reflect on that um, and then when you're ready, just eat and drink of God's presence and his love to us. All vulnerable God, creator who wept, we thank you, we thank you that in you we have a God who loved us enough to become one of us and to live in us and through us. May we have eyes to see you in the other, in those around us, and in your world. And may we have the courage to love others with your love, to embody you in how we live out our own lives. We thank you for these gifts in your great name. Everyone said, Amen. Well, have a great week, everyone. And I encourage you just to think on some of those things as we go about our week this week. Where are we feeling the absence, particularly, I think, of God's presence? And maybe in that place might be the very place that we, that we find him. It's good. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.